So, you know, most Sundays I have, you know, just people coming up to me one after another and they say, Brian, I wish that you had preached longer. I wish that you had just kept going and going and going because I just could have spent hours uh, in the word with you. You know, and then there are a few people who come up and say, you know, that sermon was too long, but I don't receive that. I don't, I don't receive that. So this morning, I wanna, I'm going to give you your money's worth. We're in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, and it is, uh, it's a, a passage that's really challenging. It's really important. It's highly debated. And so uh, we're going to spend some time in James chapter 2. That's why we trim the worship a little bit short, because it's going to take us a while to work our way through that passage. Now, before we get there, I want to tell you a story. Many years ago, when I was doing college ministry, uh, our students, we used to go out onto campus and we would uh, share our faith. So we would all gather at the academic plaza. We would gather with students from Crew and from NAVS and from InterVarsity and Breakaway and Central. We would all gather together there in, fr- in the academic plaza. We'd spend some time in prayer. And then we'd just go out on campus and uh, share the gospel and talk about Jesus. And uh, after we'd been doing that for a while, uh, we started getting reports that there was a guy who was coming up to our students. And as they were sharing the gospel, he would sit down next to them and start to argue with them and contradict them. And this guy said that he was a Christian, but then he'd get in arguments with our students about the gospel. And what he was saying is this. He said, no, you're presenting a false gospel. The gospel is really not free. Eternal life is really not free. Instead, what has to happen is you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to stop sinning. And you have to obey the Ten Commandments. And you have to pray more, and you have to study your Bible more, and you need to go on missions projects, and you have to do all of these things because the gospel is actually not a free gift. You believe, but then you have to do good works. And his favorite passage that he would quote is from James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. The question is, was he right? Did he understand James correctly, or did he misunderstand James? Or have we understood James and Paul correctly. Because James is pretty clear, I would think, but also Paul is pretty clear. And it doesn't always appear that maybe they're saying exactly the same thing. I want you to read with me verse 14. James writes, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? James' question is really clear. Can that faith save him? Can that faith that's faith alone and doesn't have work, works, can it save him? And in Greek, you can ask a question in such a way that you anticipate a positive or a negative response. It's a rhetorical device. And in this case, James is expecting a negative response. It's a rhetorical device in which he says, can that faith save him? That is faith without works. And James' expected answer is no. Faith alone without works cannot save you. Now, I hope that that makes you start to feel a little bit uncomfortable as worshipers at Grace Bible Church. Because the rest of the New Testament, particularly Paul, seems pretty clear that it's faith alone and Christ alone. I'll give you an illustration. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Paul says, don't work. Just believe. Or one of our favorite portions of Scripture, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And Paul uses a particular word for gift that means a free gift. That is a gift which, with no strings attached. 
By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one could boast. And then along comes James. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So uh, this uh, passage deeply troubled Martin Luther, who was waving the banner of faith alone in Christ alone, and then he read the epistle that James wrote, and he said, sometimes I wish I could throw Jimmy into the stove. (laughs) But he couldn't because it was in his Bible. So what do we do? How do we reconcile James and Paul, or can we reconcile James and Paul, or is it a hopeless contradiction inside of the New Testament? Let me tell you, Christians have struggled with this for a long time, and historically there have been three ways that we have tried to reconcile James and Paul. The first is this, good works are actually required to earn eternal life. In other words, there are some Christians who say, pretty much, I'm going to re-explain or explain away Paul or ignore Paul and proclaim that it's faith and works required to earn eternal life. A second way that James and Paul have been reconciled is this. Good works are required to keep eternal life. Yes, eternal life is a free gift given, but you have to do good works to keep it. And if you don't do good works, you could lose eternal life. Third way that people have reconciled is this. Good works are required to prove eternal life. That is, it's a free gift, but if works don't come along afterwards, you prove that you never actually possess eternal life in the first place. Now, in my opinion, all three of these approaches miss the point of what James is trying to say. And as a result, cloud the gospel message. C.S. Lewis was once asked, what is it that, that sets Christianity apart? Or what is Christianity's unique contribution? And he said, you know what, that's really easy. It's grace. It's grace. That is, God unconditionally loves us because of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. Because the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, God can freely, as a gift with no strings attached, give us eternal life. And we don't have to earn it, we don't have to prove it, and we don't have to try to keep it. It is an absolutely and utterly free gift. And in my opinion, I think that these approaches misunderstand James, and they misunderstand Paul, And as a result, they cloud the gospel. So I'm going to give you a fourth alternative, and it's this. Good works are required for believers to mature. Good works are required for believers to mature. Because James and Paul actually agreed completely on the gospel. Go back and read Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, Jerusalem Council, there was a huge argument. Should we bring works back into the work of Jesus Christ? And it was determined by the church for all believers that everyone, whether a Jew or a non-Jew, could receive eternal life and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ by faith alone. An absolutely and utterly free gift. You don't earn it, you can't lose it, and you don't have to prove it. It is a free gift. And the problem is that James, on the one hand, and Paul use very similar vocabulary, but they're talking about two different things. James and Paul use, use very similar vocabulary, but they're talking about two different things. So let's unpack this passage together. Let's read again verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Now, first thing that we've got to do is understand what is the meaning of save, right? We hear the word save, and our minds immediately jump to um, 
forgiveness of our sins and eternal life, get out of hell free, right? That's what we think. Right? Save, that's what salvation means. But words, words only have meaning in context. Let me illustrate for you. Uh, in English, we have a word, uh, the word date. And some of you have never even heard of that word. You've not, you don't know what that word means. You've never applied that word in your life. Date, you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say the word date, right? And some of you go, oh, no, no, I know that word. That's a, that's a piece of dried fruit. That's one of my favorites. Or you think, no, that's a, a, a point on the calendar in the fall when the first Aggie game begins. And then some of you go, no, no, that's Friday night that will fulfill all my hopes and dreams, right? That, so, so you hear date, right? Same word, three different contexts, and it means three completely different things. Save, salvation, what does it mean? Well, salvation in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is a very, very broad word. Let me illustrate. Save can refer to spiritual things or physical things. And it can refer to a variety of spiritual things and a variety of physical things. So spiritual salvation includes being saved from the penalty of sin, that is hell. It also includes being saved from the power of sin in our lives. That's sanctification. That's spiritual growth. It includes being saved from the presence of sin. That's glorification when we're in the kingdom with Jesus and all sin is removed and all flesh is removed. It can also include being saved from the loss of reward when our lives are evaluated by Jesus. Those are all spiritual aspects of salvation, the same word. There's also physical salvation from imprisonment, from enemies, from sickness, from physical death, it seems that James at least uses it once that way at the end of James, James chapter 5. So how do we know in this context what he means when he says save? Can that faith save you? We should always ask, save from what? Or just make a notation in your margin and put deliver or rescue. Because if I said deliver you, you'd say deliver me from what, Brian? Rescue me, rescue me from what, Brian? Save me, save me. From what? So context is the key, right? Context is the key. Big context, the book of James. Who's he writing to? He is writing to believers. How do we know that? Because he says so, okay? James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren. Verse 16, chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Chapter 1, verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren. Chapter 2, verse 1. My Brethren, chapter 2, verse 5, my beloved brethren. Chapter 2, verse 14, my brethren. 15 times in the book of James, just five short chapters, 15 times he says, my brethren, my brethren, my beloved brethren. He is writing to believers. Now, if James doubted their salvation, what would James have done? Come on, what would James have done if he doubted their salvation? Thank you, share the gospel. Man, say it loud. If James doubted their salvation, if you doubt someone's salvation, what should you do? Share the gospel. What does James not do? It's noticeably absent. Does he ever talk about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus? He does not in the entire book. Why? Because he thinks that they already understand it. He knows that they are followers of Jesus. That's his audience. That's who he's directing his words to. So he doesn't share the gospel because they already have an orthodox, biblical faith in Jesus. They are followers of Jesus. However, they are struggling they're struggling with trials and tribulations and testings. And in the midst of those trials and tribulations and testings, they are tempted to doubt that God is good and forget that he's the giver of all good gifts. They're tempted to doubt that. They're tempted uh, instead 
to, to turn to people and show partiality so that they can get something maybe from the rich who can rescue them from their trials and tribulations. They're tempted in their stress and anxiety to bite and devour one another and they become bitter and there's conflict amongst these people in their fellowships. In other words, they're under testing and they're not always passing the test. And so what is James' concern? He wants them to grow into maturity because our lives as believers will be evaluated. So the first aspect of context is this. He's talking to believers who are under trial that he wants to grow into maturity. Second aspect is this. Their lives, our lives, will be evaluated. So if you think about James 2, verses 14 through 26, there's a paragraph before it and there's a paragraph after it. The paragraph before it is talking about the judgment of believers' lives. The paragraph after it is talking about the judgment of believers' lives. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law that creates liberty or freedom. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the judgment of a believer's life. Chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. It's the judgment of believer's life. So the paragraph before is talking about the judgment of believer's lives. Paragraph after is talking about the judgment of believers' lives. So what might we anticipate this paragraph is talking about? The judgment, you guys, come on. The judgment of believers' lives, all right. The judgment of believers' lives. So he's talking to believers who may not be growing into maturity, and as a result, they're not going to have a favorable judgment. Remember from last semester, there are two primary judgments. The book of Revelation talks about the great white throne judgment. That is a judgment for people who say no to Jesus. They reject Jesus. Believers don't show up at that judgment. But there's a second judgment for us. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. That's just for believers. It's not for non-believers. That's where our lives are evaluated. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, if you want to go back and read that, Paul talks about the fact that a foundation has been laid. The foundation is Christ. And every single one of us is called to build on that foundation. This is where we started the service. Our lives are meaningful and significant, not wasted, but useful when we invest in the lives of other people. That is, we make disciples. So he says, you build on that foundation. Foundation is Christ. There's no other foundation. But everybody's building. That is, everybody's using their life to invest in something. Some people invest their lives in things that just don't matter. He says, that's like wood and hay and straw. And then some invest their lives in people, in people finding Jesus and following Jesus and growing with Jesus. He said, that's like gold and silver and precious stones. And so when you stand before Jesus, your life will be evaluated. And if you have used your life to invest in wood and hay and straw, make a name for yourself, accumulate power, accumulate wealth, accumulate stuff, accumulate pleasure, you've done it for yourself, what happens at the judgment seat of Christ? It is revealed that you wasted your life, okay? a wasted life. And then Paul says, but that person himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. You have eternal life. It's an absolutely free gift, but you didn't live wisely. You didn't live well. On the other hand, the one who has invested his life in people, that's like gold, silver, precious stones. That is a life that Jesus says, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. So, in the context of James, James is talking to believers, talking to believers who are struggling, who aren't always passing the tests, the trials. They're not always leaning into the opportunities 
to be transformed into the image of Christ and to serve others. Instead, they're becoming frustrated with God and doubting of God's goodness. And as a result of that, they're beginning to turn to one another and there's conflict and tension. We're going to talk more about that when we get later on into chapter 3. And James' great concern is that they would grow into maturity so that they would pass the test. James wants them to grow into maturity so that they will pass the test. So what are we being saved from? We are being saved from, in this context, an immature faith that doesn't produce good works. We're being saved from an immature faith that, as a result, causes us to waste our lives. So this is James' big idea. Faith without works, that is an immature faith, cannot save you, Christian, from a useless, wasted life that results in an evaluation before Jesus in which he says, you chose poorly, okay? What do you need to be saved from? You need to be saved from a useless life. Now, to state it positively, mature faith produces beautiful works for the good of others and the glory of God. Now, what James is going to do here is he is going to actually state this same proposition five different ways, and then he's gonna attach five illustrations to each of his statements. So he states it five ways. Faith separated from works cannot save, verse 14. Verse 17, faith separated from works is dead, verse 20. Faith separated from works is useless, verse 24. Faith separated from works can't justify, verse 26. Faith separated from works is dead. So he states it five times, and then he's going to give five illustrations. Now we're going to walk through each of the five illustrations. Illustration number one. Believers who are in need. So again, here's our proposition. Faith without works will not save you from a useless life. Let's read the first illustration that James gives, verse 14 through 17. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? The answer is no, it can't save him. Save him from what? A useless life. Because if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. James says, faith that does not have works is useless. It is of no benefit to someone who is in need. You see somebody who is, they're they're naked and they're starving, and you say, Be blessed. Be warm. May your belly be full. But you don't give them clothing and you don't give them food. What use is that? It is useless. So when my kids were little, I would tell them, please clean up your room. And they would say, yes, Daddy, we will clean up our room. And then they would not clean up their rooms, right? I mean, it just, we had this conversation over and over. As I got older, I'd say, you know, please clean up your rooms because it's valuable when you clean up your room, right? It creates order in your space. It creates order in our whole household. It's a good thing when you clean your room. And they would say, yes, Daddy, we believe. We believe that a clean room is a good thing. We believe in clean rooms. In fact, we believe in it so much, we're praying for clean rooms, and we're, and we're actually, we're, we're doing a Bible study with our friends on clean rooms because their parents think the same. And we're going to pray about it and we're going to study the word for it. And I go in their rooms and their rooms are a disaster. And I go, faith without works is dead. It's useless, man. I don't care how much you believe in a clean room. Clean it up. It's not clean. Your words, your proclamations don't accomplish any good for our family. So he says, 
faith without works is useless, or faith without works is synonymously is dead, right? It doesn't accomplish what it's designed to accomplish. Notice, he uses it as a synonym. What use is it, my brethren? Verse 14. Verse 16. If you don't give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. So what is a dead faith? A dead faith is a useless faith. A dead faith is not a non-existent faith. Okay, and this is really key to understand. Throughout the Bible, dead or death doesn't mean non-existent. It means uh, not active, right? Not fulfilling its function. Let me illustrate. Um, as I've said before, you know, the people list their greatest fears that they have. Number one always shows up as public speaking, which is funny, and then death, right? So public speaking, number one fear, then death, then third, death by public speaking is third, right? And now there's a third, or fourth rather, the fourth is, is uh, cell phone battery dying. Like literally, I mean, people list that, and it's like top five. It's a huge, 90% of people report that they experience extreme anxiety as they begin to see their cell phone battery show up red and go below 20%, so much so that a majority of people uh, admit that they have had great conflict with people that they love because their cell phone battery is dying. It's like, no, 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 who, who took my charger, right? Who took my phone charger? That's what, can I borrow your charger? Can I? And people report that they even go home. They stop what they're doing, and they go home so that they can charge their phone, right? They interrupt all their lives so they can charge their phone because that little flashing red battery is frightening. So when you see that and you're beginning to fear that your phone is about to die, what do you say to yourself? Do you say, my phone has no battery? No, you say, my phone's battery is dying, right? So dead doesn't mean non-existent. Dead means not functioning, not active, not fulfilling its purpose. Why did God save you? Just to rescue you from hell? No. No. He saved you to reform the character of Christ in you so that you would reflect who God is to the world, right? That's why he saved you. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Don't let your battery die. Don't let your faith wane. Don't let your faith become inactive. But let your faith be active and displayed through doing good for others. Why? So that people can see what God is like through your life. Okay, so that's illustration number one. Believers in need. Second illustration, a foolish fool. So remember, our thesis is this. Faith without works will not save you from a useless life. Verse 18, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, these are among the most difficult verses in all of the New Testament. And this is a really challenging argument to understand, but I want, want you to, to remember, you can understand the big idea of what James is trying to say without understanding all the details of this paragraph, but I'm going to try to walk you through it and explain it to you. Uh, what's happening here is that James creates this, this hypothetical objector. Or it's another rhetorical advice. He, he creates this, this fictional person who disagrees with him. 
And he puts an argument in the objector's mouth, and then he crushes the objector's argument. Okay? So uh, it's a technique Paul used as well. A couple of illustrations if you want to go back and look at those. Romans 9.19, you will say to me then. And then he goes on and he creates an argument for the objector. Why does he still find fault? Right? So he's creating an objection to his understanding of God's righteousness. Right? It's just rhetorical device. 1 Corinthians 15.35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? talking about resurrection, Paul, how are the dead raised, right? Creates a hypothetical objection, and then Paul crushes it in Romans 9 and in 1 Corinthians 15, James chapter 2, verse 18, but someone may well say he's creating an argument that is wrong, that is different from his argument. So what is James' argument? Well, James' argument is that faith and works cannot be separated, and you still be saved from a useless life. Faith and works cannot be separated, and you still be saved from a useless life. The objector is going to make a more narrow argument, which is faith and works can be separated. The objector is going to say faith and works can be separated. Now, one of the challenges here is this. I'll get a little technical with you for a minute. But remember, there was no punctuation when James or Paul or Peter wrote their letters. There's no punctuation. Um, in fact, when they wrote, they wrote in all capital letters. There are no commas. There are no periods. Uh, in fact, if they got to the end of a line and they hadn't finished the word, they just started the letters again, right? So there's no, not even any spaces between the words, right? I mean, ChatGPT is much better than what the original authors wrote with. So all capital letters, no spaces, no punctuation. So con- consequently, there are no quotation marks. So how do we know where the quotation marks go? only by the context. So not surprisingly, different translations have put the, con- the commas in different places, or the quotation marks in different places. NIV, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works, period, end quote. That's where NIV ends the quotation. New American Standard, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by the works. So New American Standard extends the quote all the way to the end of verse 18. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. That's the Brian Gregory Fisher Standard Translation. Ends the quotation after 19. And the reason that I do that is I think in the context, it's really clear when James comes back and puts words and addresses the objector. Okay, I think it's really clear, and it follows the same pattern that you saw in Romans 9 and 1 Corinthians 15. Who are you, O man? You know that Paul has returned to talking to the objector, not listening to the objector's words. 1 Corinthians 15, 36, you fool. James 2, verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow? James is coming back now and addressing the fool and the fool's argument after the quotation ends, end of verse 19. So, Let me paraphrase for you. All right. The red is a paraphrase and explanation. Let me walk you through this. And and let me say, this is a complex argument. Uh, If you want to walk back through this later on this week, all the slides are going to be posted online, and you can think back through it again. Um, If It just takes you a little bit of time to process, but let me walk you through it. Paraphrase. Okay. But someone that is an objector may well say, contrary to James' argument, You have faith only, I have faith in works. Show me your faith without the works, 
and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, you see, James, faith can be demonstrated with or without works. I'll prove it to you. You, James, believe that God is one. That is, you have orthodox faith. Deuteronomy chapter 6. These are Jewish believers. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This is the center of their faith. He says, James, you believe that God is one. That is, you are orthodox, and you do well. That is, James, you do good works, kalos, beautiful works. James 2 verse 8. Let's read it real quick. James 2 verse 8. He says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. That is, you are doing good works. You are doing beautiful. It's exactly, literally the same phrase in Greek. So he says, James, you believe that God is one and you are doing good works. The demons also believe, but they don't do any good works. All they do is shudder, end quote. So what's the objector's point? Faith and works can be separated. So let me make my point. James, let me show you. Let me walk you through it one more time. Someone that is an objector may say, you have faith only, and I have faith and works. Show me your faith without the works, then I'll show you my faith by my works. You see, James, faith can be demonstrated with or without works. That is, faith and works are not necessarily combined together. Let me prove it to you. You, James, believe that God is one. You have orthodox faith, faith, and you do good works. The demons also believe, but they don't do any good works. They just shudder. And James says... You fool. You're completely missing the point. James' thesis is faith and works cannot be separated and you still be saved from a useless life. The objector says, no, 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 faith and works can be separated. James says, you're missing my point. Verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Can faith and works be separated? Yes, but if they're separated, then you, Christian, will not be saved from wasting your life, okay? Now, again, all the slides are going to be posted. You can work back through it. Uh, you can send me emails. Matt and I are going to do a little podcast this week and just kind of dive back in, deep dive on this. This is the most difficult paragraph uh, in all of James, one of the most difficult in the New Testament. It's not critical to understand all the details, to understand James' point. James' point is this. Faith without works will not save you, Christian, from useless life. Illustration number three. This is the most important illustration to understand. The illustration of Abraham. So remember, faith without works will not save you from a useless life, or to put it positively, mature faith produces beautiful works. Okay, mature faith produces beautiful works. Let's read verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is the paragraph that just drove Martin Luther crazy, because he couldn't figure out how to reconcile James and Paul in this particular paragraph. Now, what's key here is remembering the chronology of Abraham's life. And I would argue this is the most important paragraph to understand in this whole argument. So here's the chronology of Abraham's life, or at least a part of it. In Genesis 12, he was given promises. Okay? Promises, land, seed, and blessing. Genesis chapter 15 the Abrahamic covenant was ratified with him, 
and he was declared righteous, right? So this is the scene in Genesis 15 where he splits the animals, and then Abraham falls in a trance, and an image of God, um, an epiphany in the form of a flaming torch, passes between the halves of the animals, right? And the idea is this. Uh, normally, when the halves of the animals would be split, the parties of the covenant would hold hands, they would walk between the animals, and they would declare the terms of the covenant as they walk through, and as they walk through, they would say, may this be done to me if I break the terms of the covenant, right? May I be split in half, may I lose my life if I break the terms of the covenant. So what happens when the covenant is ratified is Abraham actually goes into a trance, and he's watching the whole scene, and he's not walking through. Only God passes through the halves of the animal, meaning this, God alone has taken it upon himself to fulfill the terms of the covenant, it's an unconditional covenant. And it says in Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what Paul uses, Genesis 15, as the foundation of his argument for justification by faith. That's, that's the book of Romans. That is the book of Galatians. You are declared righteous to be in right relationship with God by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. That's it, an utterly free gift. Genesis chapter 22, Abraham was tested, and God said, I want you to sacrifice your son. Genesis chapter 22. That was about 30 years after he was declared righteous. Paul uses Genesis 15 as the basis of his argument. James uses Genesis 22 as the basis of his argument. Paul's talking about justification in the sight of God by grace through faith. James is talking about justification in the sight of people through faith and works, okay? So you don't actually have to reconcile James and Paul because they're talking about two different things. So let me walk you through this argument real quick. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? That's Genesis chapter 22. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was what? What's it say? Perfected. Faith was brought to maturity. It's the same word that he used to lay out his thesis for the entire book, James chapter 1, verse 4. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does James want? He wants them to be perfected. He wants their faith to be brought to maturity. How was Abraham's faith brought to maturity? Through his testing, through his trial. What are they experiencing? Testings and trials. And when they respond in faith and they believe that God is good and they say yes to all that he calls them to do, God begins to perfect their faith and bring it to maturity. How was Abraham's faith perfected? When he trusted God, when God asked him to do something that was absolutely crazy. All the promises rest in this child and yet you're asking me to sacrifice this child. I want you more than anything, God. I trust you. Notice what it says. You see that faith was working with his works as a result of the works. Faith was perfected or faith was brought to maturity. And then the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, verse 6. And he was called the friend of God. Right? So that process that began when Abraham believed God and God declared him righteous, then began to grow. Right? God progressively brought him through trials and tribulations and testings and stretched his faith. And then as a result of this really dramatic moment where he's willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, it says he was called the friend of God. Who called him the friend of God? The, the Jews. 
Right? The Jewish people. He's the father of our faith. And what do they go back to? They go back to the, to the Abrahamic covenant and Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac. And they say, he's, he's the father of our faith. He's the pinnacle of our faith. And they, and they realize he had a deep, intimate relationship and trust with God. He is the friend of God. Jews call him the friend of God. Christians, we call him the friend of God. He's the father of our faith as well. Interestingly, Muslims call him the friend of God. They look back at this moment. They don't think it was Isaac. They think it was Ishmael. But they say that, that man, Abraham, he's the father of our faith. He was a friend of God. Right? How do we show people that we love God? By telling them we have faith? No. But by our responses to God when we're going through trial, by our love for them, by our willingness to serve them and sacrifice for them. Right? How are we justified in the sight of people? By our works. How are we justified in the sight of God? Through our faith, right? Two different justifications. So let me remind you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a completely free gift, right? Forgiveness of your sins and eternal life is a completely free gift. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of your works, so that no one can boast and no one can brag. It has to be a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't lose it. Because right? God doesn't rescind his gifts. He doesn't even take them back. You can't give it back to him. Once you believed in him, you belong to him forever. You are that secure. And he sees all of the sins you committed in the past. Christ paid for those. He sees the sins you may be even thinking right now in this moment. He sees the sins that you're going to commit in the future that Christ also paid for. And he sees all of that package. And he loves you in Christ. And he doesn't love you more when you obey. He doesn't love you less when you disobey. He loves you. That is security, right? You are secure in Christ if you believed in Christ. The normal response to that is to say, thank you. I want to give my life back to you. And so the normal Christian life is that we are transformed out of our love response to what God has done for us in Jesus. But it's not inevitable. Why? Because we have this thing called flesh that keeps pulling us away, keeps tempting us to think we can figure out life our own way. And we have the devil tempting us and reminding us of all the attractions of the world. And so sometimes believers don't mature in faith. That's why each and every one of the epistles is written to you as believers so that you would mature in faith because we don't always mature in faith. One of the churches that had the, the lowest level of maturity was the church in Corinth. So Paul wrote to them and he said, I'm writing to you as babies in Christ. You're in Christ, but you are phenomenally immature. And we need to deal with that. We need to deal with your immaturity, but you are in Christ. Let me illustrate. Um, imagine that um, I walk up to a woman holding a baby. And like a good pastor, I tell her how beautiful her baby is. Doesn't matter if her baby's beautiful or not. Because some are and some aren't, but I'm not going to say that. I'm, I'm just, you know, and um, I'm just gonna say, that's a really beautiful baby. And I'm going to compliment her, her on a baby. And then I say, how old is your baby? And she says, uh, 12. And I go, oh, hold on. Something's wrong. Your baby isn't, hasn't grown to maturity. Uh, maybe it's environment. Okay? Maybe there's something genetic. Uh, maybe it's nutrition. I don't know. But by age 12, you shouldn't be holding a tiny infant. That person should have grown up into maturity. The one thing I don't say to her is, uh, you don't actually have a baby. Right? Are you tracking with me? 
I don't say no baby. I say something's wrong with the baby. Okay? So Paul goes to the people in Corinth. He doesn't say no baby. He says you're babies in Christ. He says you're immature. You haven't grown up. Uh, The writer of the Hebrews says the same thing. He says by this time you ought to be mature. You ought to be teachers of one another. You should be discipling one another. Instead, I've got to go back and lay a foundation of the basics again. You haven't grown up into maturity. Maturity is natural and normal for the believer, but it's not inevitable. Why? Because of the world and the flesh and the devil. That's why each and every one of the epistles is written to believers so that we would stop sinning and we would believe that everything God says is good and we would let the character of Christ be molded and made inside of us and then reflected in our good works to the world. That's his point with Abraham as well. Abraham believed God and he was credited as righteous in God's sight by grace through faith. And then through testings and trials and his responses, his faith grew into maturity and people said, now that's a friend of God. Now that's a friend of God. Now, are there, are there people who, who say they're Christians and they're not because they never really understood the gospel and they never actually responded to the gospel? They say they're Christians and they're surrounded by the culture of Christianity and they might wear crosses and they might have Bibles. Are there such people? Of course there are such people. And if you run into a person like that, what should you do? Share the gospel. Thank you. Thank you. All right, it's clicking. Share the gospel. Because they haven't trusted Christ yet. Are there such people? Absolutely. My point is this. That's not who James is writing to. Okay, that's not who James, James is writing to Christians who need to grow up and become mature. Fourth illustration, Rahab, chapter 1, verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, this is really interesting because he goes from Abraham to Rahab. Right? So he goes from Abraham, who's the pinnacle as an illustration of faith, to a prostitute. Why? Well, A to Z. Okay? This applies to absolutely every person. Abraham was declared righteous by grace through faith as a gift. Rahab declared righteous by grace through faith as a gift. But her faith was demonstrated by her good works. So remember, Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. She was a Canaanite woman. She heard stories about God rescuing Israel out of Egypt, the Exodus, and heard about all of his wonders and the manna in the wilderness and the quail and the water and heard all of these things. And she said to herself, that's the one true God. I want to follow him. So when the Israelites showed up in Jericho, she hid the spies because she believed in God. And as a result, she was saved. Saved from what? Saved from dying. She was saved from death. Her family was saved from death because the Israelites came in and all the walls fell down in Jericho and everyone was, was killed and she was not killed. She was saved. She rescued herself and she demonstrated her righteousness to the Israelites. So much so that there was one Israelite who said, now that's a woman of faith. I don't care what her past is. That's a woman who loves God and follows God. She was willing to risk everything. She was willing to risk the wrath of her people because she believed in God. I want that woman for my wife. And then she shows up in the lineage of King David, and then she shows up in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Wow. That's a godly woman. That's a godly woman. She lived out her faith from Abraham to Rahab 
the point is exactly the same. Without works, faith will not save you if it has no works from a useless or a wasted life. On the other hand, mature faith produces beautiful works, beautiful acts of trust in the midst of trial, in the midst of stress, beautiful acts of service to others who are in need. That's what mature faith does, and that's James' concern. Now, fifth and final illustration, a dead body. Okay, a dead body. Verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith so also faith without works is dead. So here's the comparison. The body is faith, the spirit is works. Dead is useless. Again, let's read it. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Why? Because the spirit animates the body and allows the body to do what the body was designed to do. It's got to have the spirit animating it. Also, works uh, animate your faith and allow your faith to do what your faith was designed to do. And if the body... It doesn't have the spirit, it's dead. You don't look at a dead body and say, there's no body there. You say, there's a body there that's not doing what a body was designed to do. That body needs to be alive again to accomplish what it was designed to do. So also faith is designed by God, not just to, through that initial response and act of faith, to rescue you from hell, but to grow into maturity to reflect Jesus and all of his priorities to the world, to live like Jesus. So, James' concern is this, that without works, our faith will not save us from a useless, wasted life. On the other hand, when faith matures, it produces these beautiful, and I choose that word uh, intentionally because James says good works are beautiful works. Why? Because the world sees them. And the world sees them, and they give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And that's James' concern. That's his desire for his audience, which now includes us, right? So how do we apply this? Uh, I'm going to give you just two ideas, two thoughts here. The first is um, be sure to your salvation and enjoy your salvation, okay? Um, do you believe that Jesus died, that he was buried and he rose from the dead? If you do, then you have eternal life. Okay. Um, was your faith small when you first believed? Okay. You're not saved by your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith, God. God saves you through faith. And the moment that you believe, you belong to him. And he's a good shepherd, and he will not let you go. And you can remember the cross, and you can have a sense of assurance. You belong to Jesus. You can't earn it. You can't lose it. You don't even have to prove it. But the normal response when you've been given the greatest gift that could possibly be given is gratitude. That's the normal response. You go, yeah, I, I want to love Jesus back. I want to be transformed. I want to be like Jesus. So enjoy your assurance of salvation because it, being in a secure relationship will give you courage to step out in faith. If you're always wondering, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Then you're going to be completely insecure and you're going to be working to earn God's favor, but you already have God's favor if you are in Christ. You belong to Christ. It's just a gift, right? Enjoy that today. Just enjoy it and celebrate it. But second, I want to encourage you, and you don't hear this often in church, but I want you to be really discontent. And this is what I mean. I want you to ask God to make you discontent with where you are in your spiritual life right now. God, I, I mean, I've been praying for us all week that we, we get through the end of this and we'd say, you know what? I want more. By the end of this semester, I want more. I want more of Jesus. I want to, I want to know Jesus more deeply. I want him to have more control of my life. I want to more fully reflect Jesus in my speech and in my, my thoughts, my emotions, my attitudes, 
The things that I do for others, I want more of Jesus. I want Jesus to have more of me. I want more. I don't want to be content with where I am right now. I want to press on to maturity. I want to become like Jesus. Jesus, make us discontent with where we are right now. Make us long for more. That's my prayer for us. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that in our understanding of the details of this passage, we wouldn't miss the point, which is that you call us to maturity. You call us to, to, be, to be deeper in our love for Jesus. You call us to more fully reflect Jesus in all that we say and all that we do, and all that we think and all that we feel. And I pray that we wouldn't miss the point that you're calling us to maturity. I pray, Father, that we would want more. We would not be content with where we are, but that we would surrender all of our lives. And as a result, Father, that you would pour out good works through us to the people around us so they would see our transformed lives and that we'd be drawn into relationship with your son, Jesus, through us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.